We have been studying, as we said, a series on fundamental truths. And when we're talking about a fundamental truth, we're talking about a foundational truth. And really, there are three primary pillars that provide the basis for who we are as New Testament Christians. Uh, there is the pillar of God's existence. And obviously, you can see that if God does not exist, then everything else that we're doing makes no sense at all. But if it's possible for us to come to believe that there is a God on the basis of the evidence that we have, then surely there is a next step beyond that first conclusion that there is a God. And the next step is the second primary pillar, and that is that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Son of God. That he is, as Peter proclaimed him to be, the Christ. And to say that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah that the Old Testament looked forward to is indeed a tremendous statement, for it tells us that what he says to us is the plan that God has for us. And so we're obligated not just to acknowledge him, but to obey him. And if we are obeying Jesus, then we are obeying his word, which then brings us to the third major pillar supporting our, our faith, and that is the concept that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And so if it is the case that God exists and that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that the Bible is the Word of God, then you and I have the obligation to follow the Bible wherever it leads us. And as we have moved through this study, reasoning from the existence of God to the inspiration of Scripture, we began talking about the church that is described in Scripture. And having defined what the church is and noticed that it is composed of individuals, we began looking in the last few weeks at the origin of the church. And I mentioned to you in a previous study that there are really four components about the church's origin that are significant by the New Testament's standards. One of those is the fact that the church was planned. And we find out that the church was indeed planned by God from all of eternity. Another is that the church is predicted. And so there are a variety of passages where we have a description of the coming kingdom, a description of the coming church that are found in the Old Testament and then fulfilled in the New Testament. The third component is that of proclamation. Before the church came to exist, it was described, and described in proclamation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the baptizer and Jesus both proclaimed that message. And then finally, the church was produced. That is, it began. And if it is the case that God exists and that Jesus is the Son of God and that the Bible is the Word of God, then the church that we find produced in Scripture is the church that you and I want to be a part of. And it's very important to stop and ask ourselves, when the folks on Pentecost obeyed the gospel in Acts chapter 2, and the final verse in that chapter says, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We have to stop and ask, to which church did he add them? And of course, the answer is, he added them to his church. And you and I should want to be a part of that church. That's the body 
that we desire to be a part of. And so that's the church that we're considering as we go through this study. Now, we looked in last week's lesson at passages pertaining to the planning of the church and passages pertaining to the prediction of the church. I want to take this to the next step and look at passages pertaining to the proclamation of the church. So, if you will briefly, let's look at Mark the first chapter. Mark chapter 1. When compared to Matthew and Mark specifically, Mark's account of the life of Jesus is condensed. It doesn't mean that Mark's account is any less valuable. He actually talks about certain things that Matthew and Mark or that Matthew and Luke do not mention. But Mark really does get to the heart of the matter very quickly. And you see him summarizing the beginning of Jesus' ministry uh, from verse 9 onward. And in verse 14, this is what happens after both the baptism and the temptation of Jesus, which really are events that mark the beginning of his physical ministry. Verse 14, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, that language is not surprising to us from our perspective. But I'd like to remind you that Jesus was saying the things that Mark is describing here in this passage before he went to the cross. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you will notice that the gospel Paul describes as the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And yet, in this passage, when Jesus was preaching, he was preaching according to verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And when his words specifically are described in verse 15, he is saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, if the gospel is the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and of course the message of the gospel is able to allow us to develop our faith even beyond then what Jesus is advocating here in this passage is a response to His plan, to the will of God. And that response is necessary for entrance to the kingdom of God, which other passages subsequently show us has reference to the church. And so when an individual obeys the gospel, that individual becomes a part of God's kingdom, which is the body of Christ, which is the church that belongs to Christ. And so in this passage, we see that church in prospect. We see it being proclaimed by Jesus even before he went to the cross to die in our place. Another passage that's important along these lines is in Matthew chapter 16, perhaps much more familiar to you. Matthew 16. And notice 
the conversation that is transpiring between Jesus and his apostles. In verse 13, they came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked the disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And in previous lessons, we have noted the significance of the prophecy of Daniel, the seventh chapter, where the Son of Man is presented before the Ancient of Days and given the kingdom that is everlasting. When Jesus, in this passage, calls himself Son of Man, he is not merely using a common phrase that perhaps the apostles had gotten used to calling him by. He is claiming to be the fulfillment of Daniel, the seventh chapter. That's very important. Now, verse 14, So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? In other words, do you agree with me when I say I am the Son of Man? That I am the one who is presented before the Ancient of Days, the one who was given the kingdom that was everlasting that would never fade away. Peter answered and said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, Peter responds to Jesus and he says, yes, that is exactly who you are. You are the Son of Man. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in response... Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There is that proclamation of the coming of the church. It is Jesus' church. It is not man's church, which means he has the authority to direct, to guide, to instruct. And he goes on to say, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Which is, by the way, the very same thing that is stated in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And so the application of that prophecy is seen very clearly in this passage. And he says, uh, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That same kingdom that Jesus is preaching in Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 is the church that Jesus promises to build here in Matthew chapter 16 verses 16 through 19. And so the church is seen not only in the eternal plan of God and in the predictions of the various prophets that we can read about in the Old Testament, but in the proclamation of Jesus himself whether it was in his preaching that began very early on in his ministry or in this discussion with the apostles after the great confession that Peter makes. Now, with that said, the other component of the beginning of the church is found in its production. And for that, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Before Jesus ascended into the heavens, in the first chapter of the book of Acts, the apostles wanted to know if he would at that time restore the kingdom to Israel, verse 6 of chapter 1. Now that question was based on a misconception of the nature of the kingdom. They still were unaware of exactly what the kingdom was. And Jesus responded and he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the age. 
Now, if you go back to an earlier time in the ministry of Jesus in Mark the ninth chapter, Jesus said to those who were with him, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not see death till the kingdom of God comes in power. Well, the power that he has reference to in Mark the ninth chapter is the same power that is being described in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, which was fulfilled at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles. And so in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The power that Jesus was describing in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. And just so the crowd would know that the apostles did indeed have God on their side, they began to speak in foreign languages that they've never studied. Now you need to realize that Jerusalem was a festival where Jews would come from all over the known world to observe the feast. Uh, Jerusalem was the place where the Pentecost feast was observed. And as a result of that, individuals would come from a variety of places, not necessarily speaking the Aramaic that was common in Jerusalem at that time. And the apostles began speaking in the various languages of the people who had traveled to that location. It caught their attention. They were listening. And when they had the attention of the crowd, Peter took the opportunity to preach. And after dismissing some in the crowd who simply said the apostles were drunk, he begins to quote from a prophecy that we noted in our previous study, Joel chapter 2. And that prophecy is quoted beginning in verse 17 and concluding in verse 21. Peter says, It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I shall pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. They shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now Peter's reason for quoting from Joel 2 is significant. The people want to understand what's taking place on this occasion. And Peter tells them this is what Joel the prophet was looking forward to. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit that would be manifest in a variety of ways and that would bring individuals to the climax of calling on the name of the Lord in order to be saved. Now let's take one step back and ask a question. Is this the first time that we read about folks calling on the name of the Lord. Well, of course not. There are a number of examples in the Old Testament where individuals called on the name of the Lord. As a matter of fact, if you go back through the book of Genesis, you will find individuals who called on the name of the Lord, which indicates that they were simply doing what the Lord told them to do which forms the basis of our understanding of what it means today to call on the name of the Lord. 
But what is especially interesting is that after Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2, he begins immediately to defend the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And he does that by three different arguments. One is that Jesus is the Christ and you could have known it by the miracles that he worked. And so he tells them in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to God by you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. In other words, you've witnessed the miracles of Jesus. You could have concluded he was more than a man. You knew that he had raised the dead, that he had opened the eyes of the blind, that he'd healed the lame. You were part of the crowd, perhaps, when he fed the multitudes. All of those things indicate that he's more than just a man, that his testimony is genuine. Peter says, you could have known that. But they couldn't have just known that Jesus was the Christ on the basis of his miracles. They could have known that Jesus was the Christ on the basis that his tomb was empty. And Peter very interestingly quotes from David in the Old Testament. Verse 25, David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken, therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That last statement's important to the context. Because he goes on in the very next verse, verse 29, and he says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and that his tomb is with us to this day. Now why does Peter say that? Because David had written, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And Peter is arguing that David did die and that David's bones were still in the grave. He was dead and buried and was with them until that day. But just as assuredly as David's bones were in the grave, the bones of Jesus weren't. He was the Christ and His resurrection proved it. So they could have known he was the Christ by the miracles that he worked, by the fact that his tomb was empty, and then thirdly, by the testimony of faithful witnesses. So he says in verse 32, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. The twelve who were preaching upon that occasion, witnesses of the resurrected Savior. The old law only required two witnesses, perhaps three, to establish a truth. There were twelve apostles who were all advocating the same fact. Jesus is the Christ. And so Peter continues, and eventually he convicts the people who are present of crucifying the very one they should have been honoring. He says in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now sometimes, because we so commonly use the various designations that rightly belong to Jesus almost as a name, we miss the force of the argument. We call him Jesus Christ as if Christ is his last name. We talk about him being the Lord and we really don't think about the implication of what that means. What Peter is saying here is this, that man named Jesus is your Lord. You killed him, but he's the one you should have been obeying. And that man named Jesus is the Christ. And if you were a Jew, the Christ is the very one you were supposed to look forward to, to welcome the anointed one of God. And verse 37 says, when they heard this, the application of Joel's prophecy, 
The three arguments that pointed to the identity of Jesus as the Christ and the fact that they were guilty of crucifying him, they were cut to the heart. Now, what I've always found to be especially significant about verse 37 is that it does not go on to say, and as a result of being cut to the heart or bothered by what they heard, they immediately stopped what they were doing and they cried out, Lord, save us. Now, why didn't they do that? We've already noted that in the sermon earlier, Peter has quoted from Joel chapter 2, and Joel chapter 2 clearly says, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If these are individuals who believe themselves to be in need of salvation and they had just heard the preacher say it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, why didn't they stop at that very moment and simply cry out, Lord, save us? And the answer to that question is quite simple, actually. Because they understood in that context that calling on the name of the Lord doesn't just mean crying out, it means doing what the Lord says to do, just like it always did. That was true in the Old Testament, it remains true today. To call on the name of the Lord is to be obedient to the plan of God, and at that juncture, these individuals who had rejected Jesus realized, we don't know what the Lord wants us to do. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter responds to them, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And those individuals upon that occasion who gladly accepted His word were baptized. 3,000 of them. And on that very same occasion, verse 47 says, describing the totality of the event, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now we've talked about the church being part of the eternal purpose of God. The church that is predicted in the Old Testament, the church that was proclaimed by Jesus even before He died, and now the church being produced. But what is very, very vital for us to grasp regarding verse 47 is this. When those individuals obeyed the gospel that they were told on that occasion, the same gospel that Jesus talked about when He was proclaiming the coming gospel of the kingdom, when they obeyed the gospel, the Lord added them to the church. Which church did He add them to? I can't tell you how many times I've asked that question in personal Bible studies, perhaps to some of you. And the answer that just about everybody gives every single time is this. He added them to his church. not to one that's man-made. And my immediate response, and I am as sincere as I can be when I say this, why can't we be a part of that church today? If we can obey the same plan of salvation that the people on Pentecost obeyed, why wouldn't the Lord still add us to His church? 
not to some man-made body, but to the church that belongs to Christ. And so as we're talking about fundamental principles, we have the fundamental principle of the existence of God, which leads us to the fundamental principle that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, which leads us to the fundamental principle that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, which leads us to the fundamental principle that the church that we read about in the Bible is the church that belongs to Christ. And it is the church that you and I should be a part of. It does not abide by the doctrines. It does not abide by the teachings of man. It abides by the authority of the last will and testament of Jesus the Christ. The New Testament. And so the church has to function as the New Testament directs. And the church has to worship as the New Testament directs. And in subsequent lessons, we're going to take just a few moments to think about what that New Testament worship should look like. If it's possible for us to be a part of the church that belongs to Christ, the same one those folks on Pentecost were added to when they obeyed the gospel, then surely we can continue to conduct ourselves in the same way that that church conducted itself that we can continue to worship in the same way that that church worshiped. And so our very sincere question is, how did they conduct themselves? How did they worship? And if we can define from Scripture what they did, and if we can follow what Scripture not only commands us, but authorizes by the approved examples that we find within it, or by implication then we have an obligation to do so. That's the direction that we're going to go in our next lesson.